hear something weird? So a quick disclaimer uh, before we actually do dive into deja vu and eventually mass hysteria. Um, this is by no means an entire summation of like whole fields of science, nor am I an expert on these subjects in any sort of way. I don't have a degree in psychology. I am not a psychiatrist uh, in any official capacity. Um, I am just a simple disembodied voice speaking into your mind about the human psyche experience. So really, just have fun with it and kind of just enjoy the ride with me as we dive into the topics for today. Okay, so the first topic, deja vu. Um, this is definitely something that I think pretty much everybody has actually experienced at one point in time in their life. Um, in fact, I'll even have a little study later that definitely proves that. So I'm not just speaking into the endless void of horribly misinformedness as usual. Um, but deja vu, right? Like, so it's this weird feeling like you have done something before, but yet you know that you can't have possibly had that memory because you haven't done the thing that you're doing right now before, or at least not the same conditions. There's something different about it to where it's unfamiliar, but you yet you have this sense of familiarity about it. So what is that? Where's it coming from? Do we, do we even know what actually causes that? Um, well, spoiler alert, we don't. <laughs> we don't know what actually causes uh, deja vu. Um, however, it, we do have some pretty good ideas, and we'll dive into them as we kind of go. Um, but first, we need to agree on what the proper definition of deja vu is. Uh, deja vu, which you might guess is French, um, French for already seen uh, or already like experienced, essentially. Um, it's having a strange sense of familiarity, like it's a past experience, but you also know that you haven't done it before. Um, like I said, in French, it means you've already seen something. You've already gone through the, the motions of it. In 1983, a guy named Dr. Vernon Knepp defined deja vu as, quote, subjectively an inappropriate impression of familiarity of a present experience with an undefined past. I just let's just take a second here and just think about what a sick burn that could make. Like, can you imagine you're seeing someone from 10 or 15 years ago back in middle school or high school and they know you from your hometown and they try to be like all buddy buddy with you and you just hit them with can you just stop giving me the inappropriate impression of familiarity because i don't like you and i don't want you to think that i like you so bye like that's just great put that in the gray matter right there inappropriate impression of familiarity i just it's it's great i, I love that anyway side note um, originally people thought it was indicative of like a deeper mental disorder. And as we'll kind of see later, it is kind of true, but it's usually more so a symptom or like a, a after effect of something like a, like a brain, like a brain trauma or, um, suffering from like seizures in some way, like epilepsy. So originally, that's what they thought it was indicative of, of a deeper mental disorder. Uh, but it's also have been said to be caused by paranormal events, like it's messages from a past life that you've done. 
which I thought was really cool, but the actual science behind it, it seems to not go in that direction. But sometimes the funnest answers are unfortunately not the real answer, and that's okay. That's just life. We just get hit with the boring crap, and we just got to deal with it day by day. So basically, every moment that we are experiencing is being captured in real time by our brains, right? Deja vu happens when there's a hiccup in the middle of our brains storing information or memories, or rather like the interpretation of the real world. We'll dive into the specific types of memory a little bit later on. Um, but funnily enough, it happens most often when you're about between 15 to 25 years old. It tapers off as you tend to get older. Around 97% of the population has actually experienced deja vu at least once in their lifetime. And a study found that being able to lucid dream, being well-educated, um, having being able to travel often, and being politically liberal had higher chances of experiencing deja vu. This is the part where I got to tell you that correlation does not mean causation. So your political leanings, they correlate again. You can have a correlation between two things. That does not mean that they are causing each other or they're the causation of each other. However, when it comes to deja vu for me personally, um, it usually has come from dreams. Now, this is different because when it comes from dreams, it's not deja vu. It's another term. It's called deja rev, which, again, is French for um, already dreamed. And I'll cover that a little bit later in the show, so that's nothing to worry too. But just keep that in mind, that deja rev and deja vu are completely different things. Deja vu is, I've experienced this before. Deja rev is, I've dreamed of this before. So just keep those differences in mind. Okay. So why does it happen? Well, we don't have an official answer, um, but there's a lot of different approaches that scientists and researchers have tried to take. Uh, and the first one is gray matter. Now, a 2012 study done by Milan Brasdil, I really do hope I pronounce all the names in this whole episode as right as I can. And I just want to give a personal apology to every single researcher's name that I will probably butcher. And for that, I can only ask for forgiveness in the most deepest of ways. All right, so on to the butchery of these people's works. Okay. 2012 study done by Milan Brasdil, published by the National Library of Medicine, found that when they did neuroimaging of subjects who had experienced deja vu versus those who didn't show uh, that they had gone through deja vu, the deja vu patients had less gray matter in specific sections of their brain. So basically, the less gray matter a region has in the brain, the more it impacts a person depending on the region. So in this case, they saw it in the hippocampus region, which controls our learning and our memory. Now, another article or another paper looked at instead delayed memory creation and a split in our perception. So a man named Alan S. Brown published an article in 2004 where he hypothesized a few reasons why deja vu occurs. His ideas have to deal with attention and implicit memory. Now, implicit memory means uh, the subconscious that creates our memories for us. He thinks that there could be three reasons why potentially we have deja vu. The first reason being 
there's a neurotransmission speed change in which results in our brain recalling a recent memory after the fact. So basically there is a hiccup on the highway of your perceived like look of the world and what you're feeling and going through. And that data is being transmitted on like a little neural highway to the brain. Well, that little highway, that connection point, something's getting broken. Something is getting in the way. There's a traffic jam of some kind. And so it takes a little bit longer for it to get back to you. So then when that resolves or that traffic jam, in this case, the, with going with the metaphor, is resolved, the brain gets that message. And if, essentially, it feels as if the brain has gotten the message late. And when you feel that you've gotten it late, you feel that it's in the past. And therefore, what you're doing feels like you've done before because it's a delayed message. So uh, the second one is that we simply just get distracted in the middle of the event that we're doing, which creates two separate instances of us experiencing the event. So like you go to, say, unlock your door into your home and like a loud sound distracts you for a split second. It's a very loud like clap big loud like audible stimulus and you turn your head and you're distracted and then you turn your head back to the door and you feel like a strange sense of well deja vu well that's because the brain was in the middle of basically processing the actions that you were doing to open the door and suddenly there was a very loud distraction which broke that connection briefly and so when you reestablish it it feels as if you're reestablishing it like in the past within that same moment and his third one is, is that our brain accidentally activates our implicit memory in the same moment that we're doing the activity, which gives a sensation as if you're remembering something. So like I said before, implicit memory is the memory of the subconscious, right? That is where we store the subconscious memories, and that is where we tend to keep them when we need to pull them for reference like much later on. In this case, the brain basically sent the signal wrong or something's getting crosswired. Again, you'll see this whole crosswire theme more and more later on. And basically the brain is accidentally pulling on the implicit memory while you're in the moment and experiencing something, which is then what gives you the sensation of, oh, wait, this feels like I, I've done this before. And it could be something that you've never done before, which, again, deja vu. Uh, so another way that we think as to why it happens, I mentioned this earlier, is brain injuries. Um, this is actually a pretty obvious one for why it could cause deja vu. Uh, brain disorders or damage of the hippocampus region of the brain can increase the tendency of deja vu occurring. So in particular, any damage that has to do with how we perceive the world will ultimately negatively impact us and especially our memory because again deja vu is feeling as if you have this false memory associated with what you're doing even though again you know that you shouldn't have the memory of this because this is the first time that you're doing it so there you go that's a pretty obvious one i think we can all see how a brain injury can definitely lead you to being more susceptible to instances like deja vu especially so one of the next reasons is just straight up memory shenanigans that's what i'm just calling this whole section it's, it's the human brain and memory oh let me tell you so in general our memory is imperfect and sometimes we don't realize we have memories being stored 
when our brain actively does it. So oftentimes we do routine things every day and we repeat them in predictable patterns. Humans are definitely uh, pattern seeking creatures, right? We like to do things in certain patterns. We even can like spot things in certain patterns. Um, I can't remember what the exact effect is. I think it's called periodelia. Uh, I can't, I think that's it. Don't quote me. But basically it's the phenomenon where you look at an image and you swear you can see like a face in the image, like out of smoke or fire. And in reality, there's nothing there. But the brain is looking to try to turn something unfamiliar into the familiar. You're looking for a pattern. You're seeking something to solidify. And our brain is, is taking note of things that we find mundane and irrelevant. It's sometimes in these cycles that our brain begins reprocessing things about our mundane activities. This is thought to lead to the sensation of deja vu for most people. It's the present feeling like the past, but now your brain actively brought it up to your conscious mind in this particular instance. So it's taking something that is particularly always on autopilot and it's bringing it up to the surface and presenting it to you. And of course, you're like, wait, uh, I, of course, I've, wait, I've done this before. What am I, what am I thinking? So that's a, that's basically another way is just general memory shenanigans. Like the brain is bringing up things that it's just normally mundane and it brings it up to the active mind. And the active is like, I don't know what you want me to do with this. Like I'm confused and I'm scared and I want to go home, <laughs> says the brain. This is also related to another term called dual processing. So it's essentially when there are two processes, which usually work together in harmony that then have a hiccup. So things like familiarity and retrieval become out of sync. When they resolve, you feel as if you've done this thing before because the crossed wires originally between that perception are now back to normal. So that familiarity and that retrieval part, they're usually two things that are working in tandem, almost like two wheels on the same axle of a car. Well, something can like loosen that axle and basically maybe like one wheel gets shifted above the other and it starts to get very uneven, right? So something is messing with the pattern, the signaling here of these dually like working together processes so that when that one process that was lagging behind does eventually catch up, that catch up feeling is deja vu. That's the feeling. It's the catching up of our senses to what we were trying to do or what we're doing actively or our brain understanding what we're doing. Okay, so memory types. Now, memory has a lot of subtopics and sub meanings that we really don't need to dive into right now. What we need to know is about one specific memory type, and that is recognition memory. Just as it sounds, this is the type of memory that allows us to feel like we've done something before. This is what activates when you say play a sport that you used to play a lot as a kid, or you play a song on the radio that you've heard before when you were, say, younger or just in the recent past, like a few months ago or a year ago. The brain fluctuates between two different types of recognition memory, recollection and familiarness. Basically, recollection is the exact way that we can recall having done something before, while familiarness gives a vague feeling of having done something before, but we can't pinpoint 
how and where we've done it. Deja vu, therefore, must be familiarity-based because it gives us the sensation of having done something, but we can't really pinpoint or remember how. So we can kind of zero in on where deja vu is happening in terms of our memory, so it's probably happening in that sort of familiarity core of our brain. Anne Cleary, a psychologist at Colorado State University, um, conducted an experiment to induce deja vu in the subjects of the study. She wanted to see what elements were needed to trigger feelings of familiarity. She gave the subjects a list of random words and told them to memorize and study the words. So she gave them a random sheet of words and said, all right, okay, study and random and like memorize these words. Then she conducted a word recognition test, but some of the words only sounded like the words on the list. So like an example was like, lady sounded similar to 80. So there's, they just sound very similar, but they're still two different words. The subjects recalled the sense of familiarity with these same sounding words, even though they were on the list. This is also just a quick side note, a testament to how finicky the human memory is in general, in my opinion. Okay, so deja rev. Now this is where we're going to get into, unfortunately, less information, but it's also kind of cool. Now, this is a deja experience that I personally have had a lot, and this tends to be what I feel most of all in comparison to, like, deja vu. I still feel deja vu personally, and I bet anyone listening to this has definitely felt it. Again, 97% of you have, and if you're, like, the 3% of the world that's like, what even is this guy talking about? Wow, I envy your brain and your existence. Just give it to me. Deja rev is like the feeling of deja vu, but it doesn't involve doing something that feels familiar, but instead it's having seen the vision of it beforehand in a dream, or it feels like you've seen it in a dream. Deja rev is even less studied than deja vu, believe it or not, because of its rarity, and it's really difficult to reproduce, uh, like it's, it's hard to reproduce in a lab, essentially. Until in 2018, when Jonathan Currett took epileptic patients, and what he did is that he performed this electrical brain stimulation to induce the sense of deja rev. Now, the researchers were able to induce deja rev and classified their findings into three specific categories. So, a specific recollection meant it was episodic like, a vague dream was defined as familiarity-like, and the final category was called the dreamy state, where the subjects felt like they were dreaming the second that they were kind of feeling the deja rev effect. They also noticed that they could influence the states based on where they stimulated the brain. Stimulating the medial temporal lobe induced more episodic and familiarity deja rev, while the dreamy state was induced uh, by the electrical brain stimulation uh, to just the brain and like other areas in general besides the medial temporal lobe. My crazy 2AM conspiracy mind says this is probably an instance of the dream and the memory side of our hippocampus acting up. This is why I had that disclaimer in the beginning that says that I'm in no way an actual psychologist. So I can go ahead and get away with saying crazy crap like this and be totally fine legally and medically like you can't pin it on me if i turn out right or wrong so take that government so like 
something in the hippocampus goes haywire and triggers for an extremely like brief second of time a dream. But because we're awake and we clearly know we are awake, the dream doesn't become like a normal, trippy, reality-broken experience like we usually do when we sleep at night. Then again, I'm just an insane man making this episode at 2 a.m. with five hours of sleep. Maybe I'm not the most reliable narrator, but I am the most dedicated. Okay, so mass hysteria, or as it's also called by the fancy pants Mr. Smarty Heads, the scientists and the scientific community, mass psychogenic illness. Man, that is like the coolest thing. That would be a great band name, mass psychogenic illness. Like, come on. How has no one made their band that? Like, seriously, there's a lot of just scientific terms that we could just steal and make the sickest metal bands. Like, all right, beside the point, mass hysteria is defined specifically as, quote, the spreading of a disease where no contagion is responsible for, unquote. So in short, it's when a purely psychological cause is responsible for real effects on the human body. So the symptoms have no real cause or source except for the fact that the patient believes that they have it and therefore their body manifests it. This is where we're going to get into some crazy territory again. So buckle up, buckos. Now, usually when people talk about manifesting things in the universe, it's usually like love or wealth, not dancing until you're dead or meowing uncontrollably. So... I don't know what to tell you. Manifest stronger good vibes for good times, because if not, meow. That's so stupid. I, I'm not going to keep that in. Nah, I'm going to keep that in. Okay, so why does mass hysteria happen? Now, again, with the deja vu thing, we don't know why it can happen, but we can definitely point at causes as to when the events occur. Now, the tricky part of mass hysteria is setting the stage for the delusion. There has to be enough belief in the concept for it to begin to being able to be believed. So you can't just have like a crazy thing like a unicorn ran through the middle of the village and farted and that's why everyone has asthma. Like it's just there's no plausibility to that. There's no reasonableness to it. It just it just doesn't doesn't really work. However, if you had said like, oh, I heard that Ted, my neighbor, he the reason why he's in the hospital is because he drank something. And then he said the water like tasted funny. That is staging for a more plausible delusion because we know about waterborne parasites, waterborne diseases, water pollution, all kinds of things that could lead to real physical symptoms, real actual things that can lead to real diseases and real infections and symptoms but it's not true in this case it's made up but no one else knows that besides say the person making it up or you don't even need like a nefarious intent behind it intentionally sometimes and oftentimes from what we'll see in the later part where we just get to break down all the freaking crazy mass hysteria events that have happened in history it's oftentimes just out of pure ignorance and just not knowing so yeah that's the crazy part about mass hysteria 
it doesn't take intentionality to trigger an event. The fine line between mass hysteria and delusion is that hysteria takes it further and has physical symptoms that the patient can't control. And yes, you heard that right. The victims of mass hysteria cannot control their symptoms. They are purely subconscious manifestations. Now, generally, people who suffer from MH have to be in a local community, and the disease has to be believed to be real or organic that has physical symptoms. So again, it has to be like what they think is a real manifestation, like a bug that's biting and, and spreading. It has to be like a virus that's spreading, a bacteria, a parasite, a bug, things of that nature. It has to have some real, actual, real-world possibility is essentially the takeaway. Now, we don't really know why mass hysteria occurs in humans, but in general, it can be linked to the power of impression and suggestion and of our feelings and emotions in general. The human mind is exceptionally powerful, even sometimes more powerful than our bodies. And I will talk about this in another episode, but the placebo effect. It is so incredibly interesting what the placebo effect is. It's also scary how incredibly powerful it can be, which is another just crazy tangent that will go on on a different episode on a different day. But getting back to it, we have a body that reacts to the physiological and the real stimuli of the world, right? The outside world. Someone pokes you with a pen and it hurts. That's a real painful reaction that's happening to your body. But our minds react to our perception and interpretation of these sensations. So someone who has a disorder where, say, pain feels pleasurable, when you poke them with the pen, they feel a good, a euphoric sensation that comes from it, not painful. But the body is still sending that message, but somewhere up top, up top in the, the headquarters of our body, our brain, our mind, something's getting misinterpreted. This includes what we see, hear, and feel. When the conditions are right and we believe that we are vulnerable, we may find ourselves believing that we should be sharing the same symptoms as another, like maybe our neighbor, our brother, our sister, our spouse. This is even more prevalent in children as we tend to be the most impressionable when we're so young. Factors like neuroticism, education, and high media coverage have also been found to be contributing factors as to how mass hysteria spreads. In December 2021, Gang Zhao, a researcher in China conducted a meta-analysis review of mass hysteria cases. In this review, they found trends that were exhibited in all the studies that they analyzed. And in general, mass hysteria cases in children were responsible for about 10% of the total. Adolescent girls were more likely to suffer from symptoms and effects of mass hysteria events. The three main triggers of mass hysteria events for these children were water pollution, suspected food poisoning, and supernatural events. Now, luckily, the overall trends show that they are decreasing uh, as time has gone on past 2020 for children. So hopefully less occurrences of children going through genuine cases of confusion and probably suffering. But now it's good to see that that is on the decline 
presumably as more education is essentially being able to be given to these communities that surely need it. Also, a fun fact, just, you know, on the little side note, here are some of the most common symptoms of mass hysteria that will be coming to a local watering hole near you. Cough, abdominal pain, nausea, dizziness, lightheadedness, and the top number one symptom of mass hysteria is headaches. And that's not good because I have a headache right now. All right, so let's take a look at some of the most notable mass hysteria events in history. Now, I'm just going to be out right here, blanking and honest. Wikipedia summarizes the timelines really nicely, so we're going to use that as a guide. Just going to be completely honest, I am reading these from the Wikipedia, and I am just transcribing them a little bit, and just putting in the ones that I thought were most relevant or most interesting. So just a heads up there, I will be fully transparent about that. All of my English teachers right now are crying out in a silent pain the second that I said I'm citing Wikipedia. So let's start by getting medieval on your hiney. That was a Weird Al reference to all of the millennial boomers out there like myself. So the Middle Ages. The earliest cases we know of mass hysteria in history originated from the European Middle Ages. This started with the infamous dancing plagues where people in villages would fall victim to a dancing disease where they could not stop dancing for weeks on end. This would eventually lead them to death, big shock, as they would essentially die from pure exhaustion. They were known to dance in large groups, they would strip off their clothes, and some would even start laughing and crying uncontrollably until the day they died. The cause for these events were said to be the work of spirits, and the bite of a spider. So in the 15th through the 19th century, nunneries were actually a very popular hotspot of motor-based mass hysteria. Now, if you don't know, motor-based mass hysteria is just when the behavior is changed in an individual when they're inside of a hysteria event. So this is probably one that I think a lot of people have heard of, or at least they've heard inklings of. Um, for one nunnery in France, a nun began one day to meow. Soon after, more and more nuns joined in, and they all started meowing nonstop. They were even said to gather in large groups, and they would meow for hours and hours on end. Eventually, this was stopped when soldiers were brought in and threatened to whip the nuns if they didn't stop. Um, shockingly, this stopped the event, and the nuns just simply returned to normal lives thereafter. I had also kind of read something a little bit, and the reason why they had brought the soldiers in, you may think, wow, that's a really extreme thing. Um, before, they had the priest try to exorcise the nuns because demonic possession was kind of common among nuns. At some point, uh, which is kind of concerning, I guess, if you believe that stuff. Um, and the reason why is because I apparently Catholicism equates cats in some way to Satanism. The 18th to the 21st century. If you think that mass hysteria events ended in the Dark Ages, boy, are you in for a rude awakening. In June of 1962, a dress-slash-textile manufacturing plant in the South experienced what would be known as the Junebug Outbreak. 62 workers at the plant experienced symptoms like nausea and skin outbreaks on the first shift rotation of the factory. 
The victims claimed it was due to an insect that had infested the imported textile where it would then pop out of it and it would bite the workers. Now, entomologists were brought in and so were epidemiologists to try to help find evidence of such a bug, but they found nothing. Alan Kirchhoff was an investigative researcher who interviewed the affected workers and found that they all had commonalities between them. The workers were very strained. They were working a lot of overtime hours, and they were the largest contributor to their households. All the workers afflicted were married, by the way. He also found that in the social pathogen model, this lended more credence towards it being a mass hysteria event and not an actual outbreak. Uh, because of the fact that in that model, one of the requirements is that the individuals are all part of the same social cliques or social community. And, well, they were not only in the same factory working together, but they all hang out with each other. They all knew each other. So that helped give a little bit more on the side of this is probably more of a mass hysteria event than it is an actual, like, outbreak of a pathogen or a disease. The Tanganyika laughter epidemic that occurred in 1962 affected 14 different schools in the region, and it had an estimated over 1,000 people being afflicted by the event. And just as it sounds, it was a case of uncontrollable laughter just for like hours on end. It was pretty debilitating, actually, because that can be quite a bit of scarring along your esophagus, I would imagine. In October of 1965, an all-girls school in Blackburn, England, experienced a mass hysteria event among its students. Now, at first, the outbreak started quite small, where a couple of students felt dizzy and they fainted. Within two hours of the first patient symptoms, 85 more schoolgirls were sent to the hospital. The girls complained of suffering from swooning, fainting, moaning, dizziness, shattering teeth, hypernia, which is deep, rapid breathing, and tetany, which are just a, it's a type of seizure, essentially. Two psychoanalytical British researchers analyzed the events the next year and were able to conclude the findings from the study. Firstly, the clinical and lab investigations found absolutely nothing was wrong with the girls in terms of their physiology, so their bodies. Health authorities could find no evidence or traces of food or air pollution or contamination of any sort. The school completed questionnaires which helped narrow down which age group the outbreak occurred in, which was found to be in the around the 14-year-old age group. In the afflicted age groups, a ISNIC personality inventory evaluation, God, I probably butchered that one in no hell, was conducted to evaluate the personality traits of the most afflicted. The results of the test concluded that the girls had higher affinities of extroversion and neuroticism. Now, prior to the event, the town also suffered badly from a previous polio outbreak, which is thought to have made a more like powerful emotional stain like or like a vulnerability essentially on the population because they had already seen a real disease outbreak and had suffered the consequences of that. In addition to this, a three-hour parade the day before had 20 faints reported, which the researchers concluded was probably the trigger for the event since the first symptoms, remember, they did include fainting. 
Now, in some cases, mass hysteria can inadvertently be the fallout damage from real-life terrorism attacks. In 2001, soon after the infamous anthrax attacks, there were 2,300 cases across the United States that falsely reported anthrax attacks. And what I should specify by falsely reported is they thought that they had anthrax. There was not like an intentional false reportation about that. So just want to quickly clarify that as I just caught myself mid-sentence, not saying that people like knew and they falsely reported it. These are people that genuinely thought they had anthrax, which turned out to be false alarms uh, later on. In that same year, a man sprayed a substance in Maryland, in a Maryland subway station, that 35 people reported symptoms of nausea, cough, and sore throats. It was later revealed that he had sprayed window cleaner and not anthrax as the victims had thought. Perhaps one that still perplexes us to this day is the 2017 U.S. Embassy in Cuba event of head mass hysteria that happened. Government employees at the embassy reported a range of symptoms from general to severe pain, ringing of the ears, to strong cognitive dysfunction. Some believe that the symptoms were caused by, quote, sonic attacks, so like sound waves, audible attacks, by a rival foreign power. Uh, the CIA stated that they did not believe that this was caused by like another nation's actions. Uh, in the same year, U.S. employees in the China embassy also experienced similar symptoms as well. This syndrome gained notoriety, and it was coined the Havana Syndrome because of the location of the embassy originally in Cuba. It was in Havana. It's theorized that the media coverage, along with the general government secrecy of trying to contain the story, is what caused this to basically blow up as a mass hysterical event. Today, it's mostly explained as a social pathogen, but one study conducted on the neuroimaging, so they basically just did brain scans of some of the victims of the Havana syndrome, suggests that there might be an organic real cause. This, however, is the only study that was done and only noted that there were differences in general brain volume and tissue integrity. Um, the authors themselves say that they are still uncertain if these, if this syndrome was caused by real, true, like organic events. So they still don't fully know, but they did kind of put the idea out there with just the one study. Okay, so what about the modern day? You may be thinking, okay, there's... What's been happening recently that could be considered mass hysteria? Like, we're in the connected age. We're, we're in the internet age. We're all about accessing information right at our fingertips. Well, there has been a case. There have been actually a couple of cases in the last few years. With popular trending social media sites like YouTube and TikTok and Instagram, mass hysteria is alive more than ever on the wild west of misinformation and non-existent fact-checking. When mass hysteria manifests through a massive form of communication like the internet, it's generally referred to as, quote, mass sociogenic illness, unquote. Again, that's an amazing band name, and if you don't name your band that, you are missing out on so, so much potential and awesome notoriety. Just saying. Around 2019, the number of Tourette's-like tick cases skyrocketed among adolescents and youth, most prominently in young girls. The event was so striking and interesting 
that Isabel Heyman and her associates coined the term as mass social media-induced illness. Through social media alone, a UK clinic that Isabel surveyed saw double in the referrals of Tourette's-like symptoms in patients that were referred to that clinic. Double. That is a humongous jump from year to the next year. Social media may very well be where the modern world's next hysteria events will lie. In fact, this is honestly just a guarantee. Think about the next time that you see something online that pulls out an intense emotional reaction out of you. That's the staunch warning that we have until hysteria creeps in and grips our minds and takes us on a wild, wild, imaginative ride. Thank you for sitting through my rambling about deja vu and mass hysteria on this very first episode of mine. Um, this is my first run at a more or less scripted series of podcasts that I wanted to dive into, and in particular tackling elements of the human mind and basically our psyche, figuring out why do our brains work the way they do and what are just some of the weirdest things that occur that we have to experience as human beings, and in particular that our mind essentially interprets about the world. Um, Hopefully you could take away some actual genuine knowledge and interest in the two topics that we covered today. Uh, give the official Instagram a follow at Gray Matter Show, uh, all one word. You can listen to the show anytime where you get your podcast from. Um, and a sincere thank you again for listening and hearing something weird with me. Have yourself a great day and remember to think beyond. The sources for the information that I gathered for this episode are as follows. BetterHelp, PsychologicalScience.org, PsychologyToday.com, MyBrainWare.com, a TED-Ed episode written by Michael Molina, Inverse YouTube channel, and of course, Wikipedia. <laughs>